to the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18. And I'd like to talk to you today about the importance of the church, some of the interruptions and the difficulties and the obstructions of church, and the attributes, the basic ingredients of what a church might be. From this particular vantage point, you know, whenever we dive into a subject in the Word of God, we can probably take it from a myriad of different directions. And that's the great fear that any one of you may have this morning. We want to make sure we stay on track, as Brother James has often referred to, uh, the need for preachers to stay on course. And I'd like to do that this morning. And so we find ourselves in the book of Acts. Now, when we refer to the book of Acts... We refer to the book of the Acts of the Apostles. You know, a lot of Christians today like to mirror the exact same things that go on in this early stage of the Christian church. Signs, wonders, miracles, things that were done that we just don't see nowadays. But I remind everybody, it's the Acts of the Apostles. And as much as we can glean from these pages, it is very important that we draw... But in terms of actual commandments and what churches do, the epistles really are much more prominent in terms of featuring the exact details of a church, New Testament church. Nevertheless, we're excited when we read the Acts of the Apostles because it enlivens us, it it encourages us. The Apostles heard a sound from heaven. We still need today a sound from heaven. As one preacher said, it's not enough that we have sounds on earth. We need to hear from the Lord. And that helps us along the way. We need the Lord to stir the stagnant waters. Like at the pool at the house of mercy where the paralytic laid, waiting for that angel to stir. I'd say he was persevering in the faith, would you? Some 38 years waiting to be healed. And even when he could see the water stirred, no man was able or willing to put him into that pool. So we're at the sheep gate this morning, and we're asking the shepherd of our souls to bless them, to encourage us in the ways of the Lord, to teach us. And if perchance, by the grace of God, a sound from heaven encourages us, we can say all the more, amen, revive us again in the midst of of the years, revive this stagnant heart of mine, full of unbelief. Revive me that I may know the joy of my salvation. Oh, Lord Jesus, what will you have for us today as we think about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now listen, we live in a day in which people despise the church. We don't need the church. Some of us haven't been brought up around the church. The church is a unique institution. We're not quite used to it. And yet the Lord said himself, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we understand that what took place in the days of the Acts of the Apostles, in that great day of confirmation, on the day of Pentecost, of the church, 
that we cannot deny the existence of it and that our hope is that we're a part of it here today. And if we're not, if we are not a part of the church, that it behooves each and every one of us to find out where exactly it may be. The Lord said, will he find faith on earth? Will he? And the question is, yes, he will. Where we hope to find out. Well, the church and the importance of it is conveyed here, and I'm going to read verse 7 and use that as my text this morning. Verse 7, he said, And he departed thence, this is talking about Paul, and entered a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. Names are very important. I like names. I like to define names. This is a beautiful name. We have a, 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 a frequent friend and visitor to our church whose name is Justice. That's a beautiful name. Now, he didn't name himself, and I didn't name myself, but it doesn't mean that we don't want to try to live up to the name that our parents gave us. I think we should be endeavoring to name our children with meaning and with purpose. In Proverbs 22 and verse 1, it says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And yet it's just the opposite nowadays, isn't it? We want to prepare our children with the luxury of what maybe we didn't have. We're concerned about their material welfare. But we put little emphasis on the name. Now this name, justice, literally means just. And he obviously was reminded that his parents intended him to be a morally upright person, a righteous person. That's what that word just means. But it lends itself also to equality, a person who is no respecter of persons, a person who balances everything out on a scale, you know, and delivers things in equality as God would himself, that we don't favor one person over another, that color or actions, class or social status means little in terms of our love to others. We want to be just and fair and equal in whoever we deal with, whoever, we, whoever crosses our path. This is our goal in life, just. Now, as I said, we didn't name ourselves, but it would be incumbent upon us to think back to our parents because our parents, in a sense, gave us a name. Sometimes we're named after a grandfather. Uh, uh, we're named after maybe a patron saint of some religious order. I know a lot of people are named that way. Uh, I'm, my middle name is named after my father. And when I think of my middle name, I think of my father and how I could best live up uh, to that expectation that he had for his son. And so let us choose names with grace in our hearts as we think about a purpose that we're setting forth. Let us not do it frivolously uh, without purpose and without meaning. Let it mean something. I got a cousin. Her name is Faith. I know Brother Zach, one of his daughters, is named Mercy. I've known children whose names were Grace. And so, how beautiful those names are. Now, in this particular case, we might wonder uh, that his parents had a particular bent, if you will, in a culture that was so overrun by riot and riotous living and unrighteousness that maybe they had great expectations for their child. 
by naming it justice. And so, always remember that. Now, other than that, we have no reason to know who this fellow is. Uh, it, it, the word is used, the name is used and elsewhere in other places of the Bible. Could be the same guy, I don't know. But for our purposes here, we know here is a man who worshipped God. Justice who worshipped God. And isn't that a, a unique thing? Especially in that particular day of Greek, Greco-Roman cultural moods where there was nothing but gods and goddesses and activities that were associated with such. I find it very unique that it must be by God's divine grace that a man in this particular environment worshipped God. Now what is it that we're referring to? Well, again, we're talking about the importance of the church. And the church, and the main feature of the church, is that we worship God. But we need to be reminded that our worship is not something physical in nature. When we talk about belief, faith, when we talk about hope, why, you know, embracing the things of eternal life, what is it that we do physically in relationship to those items? And so worship, we're reminded immediately... Back in John chapter 4 when the Lord Jesus said that the Father seeketh such to worship him. What is the Father? The Father is spirit. That's what he says. Therefore, those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so, remember the Apostle Paul, he said that he served God with his mind. So, with his heart. With all those components that make up the spiritual man. We're very spiritual, although we're forced, in a sense, to recognize the physical ailments and the physical limitations and the physical apparatus in which we find ourselves. But we are in spirit. Notice the previous verse. Paul, Scripture says, and when they opposed themselves, excuse me, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy were coming to Macedonia, Paul was pressed, he was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Was Christ. It reminds me again of the woman at Samaria who was very interested in filling her water pot. But what happened when she met the Lord Jesus Christ? The Messiah, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, I that speak unto thee am he. And that little word he is not in the, it's in the italics. Not in the original. As if to say Jesus is saying to this little sister, I am, he's associating himself with a name identified to God given to Moses at the burning bush. And he'll use that name, I am, in the course of John's gospel as many as, what, eight, seven or eight times. I am the light of the world. I am the door I am that I am. You know, this is a wonderful thing. I don't know if that little lady, the Samaritan woman, understood it or not. But she did know something, that that Messiah told her all things, and she was so excited that she left her water pot. She said, I perceive. I perceive. I, I see with my spiritual eyes. I perceive that thou art a prophet. She drops her water pot, and she runs to the men in the city, and she tells the things that she had just witnessed. She was worshiping God in spirit. And remember Jesus, what he said. He said, there's, there's, the time has come 
that they will no longer worship in this mountain or in Jerusalem. And of course, he's referring to the place where she went to worship in Samaria, Mount Gezerim. But today, at that very moment, the Lord was ushering in this great idea that worship is in truth and it's in spirit. Now, that tells us that there are ways in which we can worship falsely. And we should have our antennas raised. And we should have our interest keyed in on what the Bible says in terms of what worship is. Am I worshiping properly? Is God accepting my worship? Or am I vain in my worship? I don't want you to waste your time coming out here on Sunday morning if our worship is vain. If it's clouded by the traditions of men that nullify the commandments of God because they want to lord over God's heritage. This name Justice reminds me of another man in the Gospel of John by the name of Nicodemus. Because his name meant something too. And I perceive that he went to Jesus by night with a little bit of burden on his own shoulders because he stood in a sense as a representative of his own people. Nicodemus, that word is a compound name. It's a Greek name. Here's a Jewish member of the Sanhedrin with a Greek name, obviously of a higher class. But that name may have convinced him a little bit to stand in representative status to his people. That Nick means uh, victor, and Demas means people, victor of the people. I want to represent the people. And I believe in some sense that may have left him with a little bit of humility. Why did my parents name me that? Because I am to be a representative of the people. And I will represent them faithfully and truly. And so worship is the idea here. Justice, one that worship God. Now notice this, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. Now, I don't know if he had a family. In the next text, it speaks of Crispus, the chief ruler of the Jews. It mentions with all his house, he believed and was baptized. Lydia mentions her house, Cornelius, all his house. They were all together. In this particular case, maybe the Holy Ghost is teaching us here that he was on his own. I don't know. The fact that his house was situated very close to the synagogue may mean nothing more than what something we see at Walsh Track over here up up in Delaware. Uh, The caretaker's house was right across the street. And that was typical in those days. It was typical in the days when their synagogues existed that the caretaker, his house was joined to it. And so it may not mean nothing more than physical in nature. But the idea here is something far than than just physical. Because he joined himself to the synagogue. Now the synagogue, obviously, is a name of a place where we associate it with the Old Testament worship service, or at least that part of the worship service that maybe cropped up during the 400 years of silence somewhere between Malachi and Matthew. But regardless, we had the apostles going to the synagogues. We had Jesus going to the temple. There was an upper room occasion over here in Acts chapter 2. So we have various names that describe places where people came together to meet. You know, in some places they went house to house to worship the Lord. And so the point here is he worshiped God and he identified himself with people that came together and recognized the God of Israel. Now how much they knew at that particular time we don't know. 
But guess what happened? Paul the apostle came. And the Bible says in verse 11 that he was teaching the word of God among them. And so for a year and a half, the Lord laid it on the apostle Paul's heart to preach, to teach the truth, the word of God, that they may worship him properly and truly. And the Lord, remember, reminded Paul, he said, I've got much people in this city. Maybe Paul would have ran and, you know, it's too much, you know. It's too much persecution. They're chasing me from one town to the other. They oppose themselves. They blaspheme. He shakes the raiment and says, I'm, I'm, your blood be upon your own hands. I'm clean. I'm henceforth going to the Gentiles. But the Lord stood him in his tracks and said, hold on. I got people in the city. I want you to preach to them. And justice, no doubt, was one of them. One that worshiped God, whose heart was joined, if you will, to the synagogue. But this idea of the church, as I said, the importance of it, I think we have to come and recognize something. You know, when we think about the church, it's a local place. In other words, he was there. He joined himself to it. Uh, The Apostle Paul came to his house. They worshipped God. They were together in this place called the synagogue. It was a local, physical place. Now, when we think about the kingdom of God, we think it's something much different. And I'm going to represent it this way, much like our forefathers done in the past, and that is with circles. There's a big circle. It goes all the way around the world, and that represents God's kingdom. And the parables, several of the parables, you have the parables of the wheat and tares. You have the parables of the large net, parables of the mustard seed, and these parables reflect this big circle. Big circle. goes all the way around the world. And the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Acts chapter 2, rose from the dead and he sat down at the right hand of all majesty. So he's reigning now in the hearts of his people world over. Now the rite of passage into that spiritual, universal, invisible kingdom, the big circle, is no other way but by the new birth. That's John chapter 3. Except a man be born again, he cannot see or enter into the kingdom of God. Very important. Men and women, the elect, called out by God's sovereign grace are members, if you will, whose names have been enrolled in heaven. They're members of this great big circle, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, circles are great because that's how Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation and other Zechariah define, I don't know about Zechariah or Daniel, but in Ezekiel, these pictures of God's throne are pictures of circles within circles. With eyes all around. I mean, they're beautiful. I mean, I can't even put my finger on it. And so it's not far-fetched to think of God's eternal kingdom as a circle that encompasses the four corners of the entire earth. God's reign is not limited. That's what I'm saying. And Satan cannot prevent the Lord from reigning. He has received all power in heaven and in earth to give eternal life to as many that pleases him. That's God's business, isn't it? But now watch. Within this large circle, there are smaller circles, little circles, some bigger than others. And they're all over the world. I I conveyed to you not long ago about this idea of lights all over the world. 
you know, little lights all over the world. And you see it at night, the darkness of the world, the world that lieth in wickedness, the whole world, as John said. There's light. The light of life is shined in the hearts of God's people. And they come together, and we see lights in these little circles all over the world. We're a part of a little circle right now. It's called the militant church. Now, the local church is not an invisible thing, is it? It is a militant, visible representation or manifestation of God's bigger circle. You know, you're looking for the big circle, the evidence of the big circle. You're going to look for the little ones. And there you'll see elders and members who've united together in repentance and baptism and belief in the things of God. And they have all things in common. And they're meeting in one accord. And they break bread from house to house, as we read about in the second chapter of Acts. You know, they hazard themselves for the cause of Christ. What is it that gets you out of your house on a morning like this? Is it me? Absolutely not. I'm just a spectacle. I'm just a fool, as Paul said of himself. No, there's something much more dynamic. Because because that small circle represents the glory of God on earth, where Christ reigns and where his subjects bow down in honor unto him. Who, like justice, worship God in truth and in spirit. I will have it, says many of God's people. I will find it. And that's where I want to be. Our forefathers, our forefathers, we look back. They were a pitiful group of people. Small, meeting in certain places. But they had something. They had something. They loved it. They loved the honor of Christ. They loved the word of God. They didn't have much in terms of physical attainment and money and popularity and buildings. But they had something that drew them to each other. They had the truth of Christ. They honored him. They knew it. And they were met with all kinds of uh, physical ailments that stood in the way. But they were persistent. They rode to church on horseback. I remember Brother Compton. He was telling me that you know, when he went to church at Columbia in the 1960s, there were people still taking their horse and buggy to, to Columbia. You know, I guess it was a reminder of the past. When he was a little boy, the family got in the back of the, the wagon filled with hay, and they trekked off to church. They willingly pursued the worship of God. I often asked Brother Compton, I said, Brother Jim, would you like to go back to the old days? He said, what? I got a nice air-conditioned car. I don't have to worry. I got steel-belted radials. I mean, no matter you, you know, I remember as a kid, we used to drive to Ocean City, and I guarantee it, we had to stop and pull over because of a flat tire. You don't know what a tire is, uh, you know, back in those days, all rubber tire. It just didn't last too long. So anyway, what a blessing it is to worship God today. Now, Paul the Apostle recognized this idea of the outer and the inner circle. But he used different words. He talked about those, in, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when there was a serious issue at hand. He said, basically, we're not judging people without He said, but we do judge people within. So he uses different words to convey this same kind of idea. This idea of without within. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for instance, if you look up a concordance, I did, I've already done the homework, and if you type in the phrase in your electronic concordance, come together, you'll find that that phrase is used more in the New Testament than anywhere in the whole Bible, excuse me, more in the letter to the 1 Corinthians than in all the Bible. Because Paul used it in relationship to a church that came together out of the large circle and into the small one. When you drive by this building on Monday, tomorrow morning at about 9 o'clock, the church is not here. But when we come together on Sunday morning, this place is sanctified by God's Holy Spirit, where He's honored and He's made known to His people in His Spirit. All right? That's simple. It's very simple. But the idea is we define what a church is. We cannot, we can't really miss this thing about the definition of it. And when we think about the word church, how it's used, you know, whether here a synagogue, whether somewhere else a temple, if you will, whether it's the coming together from house to house, the idea is conveyed that it is an assembly, an, a spiritual assembly. Now, back in the Athenian culture, these phrases were very important as they helped define what a church is. And very much uh, a part of uh, maybe some of the landscape in our own constitution. Now, back in the day, it is my understanding that the people at large, or the demos, we use the demos, it's actually pronounced demos, for the people, the people at large. And in that culture, in that Athenian culture, he was just in Athens in the previous chapter, and obviously those laws permeated the whole Greek culture. So when people made up the village, if you will, or the people, they were people who had to prove their citizenship. They had to prove they were the right age. They had to prove that, uh, you know, they belonged to that particular village. You know, it was the people. We use it pretty much uh, the same way when we speak about, you know, maybe our constitution. We the people. You know, a government of the people, by the people, for the people. It's the same way the Greeks used it. Same way. Now, when the rulers of the people were chosen, they chose them out of the people. That's why they had to meet the certain prerequisites in order to be chosen to the council. They would call that council not a demos or a demos, but they would call that council an ecclesia, an assembly called out of that group. The word ecclesia... It's the same word that Paul uses for the word church in the New Testament. So we are a called out assembly out of the big circle. And God has called us. That's why the phrase, the Lord added to the church, such as should be saved. We are called. He said the promise is to you and to your children and to them that are far off. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. We have a calling this morning. You answered a calling this morning. And it wasn't my text. It was God's spiritual leadership in your heart to come out and worship the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. I think sometimes we ought to have a little works in the mix. Maybe we'd get more out. That place down the road, they had the whole thing paved. The place was mobbed. But when we talk about the sweet sound of sovereign grace it doesn't seem to 
motivate the Lord's people much. The Lord's done it all, I guess. Oh, I'm just speaking facetiously. We should be motivated by God's sovereign grace. I don't need to be motivated by prayer towers and, and chains and what I can do for the Lord and populating heaven. That's His work. But I'm here to answer the call of God's sovereign grace to honor Him for what He's done. Unfortunately, a lot less people will be motivated by that. That's, by our, that's because of our nature. Well, let's look at this idea of justice who worship God. This church, part of the church. Notice what he did. Secondly, and now I'm going to talk about the interruptions, the difficulties, the difficulties of coming to church. What does it take? Notice what it says. He joined hard to the synagogue. Now, if it wasn't for that adverb hard, if it was just he joined to the synagogue, I might agree with the fellow who says, yeah, it's just attached, just a physical attachment. But that word, that adverb there, lends itself to the idea of perseverance, of energy, of spiritual vitality. It lends itself to a spiritual aspect of his being numbered, identified with that church. He, he was joined hard to the synagogue. And that word hard denotes this idea of an effort that is put forth to the local church. And then, of course, when you think about the culture in which he was situated, then you might add a little bit more credence to this idea of being so close to the meeting house. One of my goals in life is to be closer physically to the meeting house because that way I can enjoy even the Wednesday night services. But the idea here is that he is energetic to be numbered, to be identified, to be a member of, to have all things in common, to be singleness of heart, to endeavor, right, to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's a desire, there's an aim. This is what we're missing today. What we miss today among Christians, is this attitude that I will separate myself from the world, leave it behind, I'm not of the world, and I will be enjoined to the spiritual body. Paul calls it a spiritual habitation of the Holy Spirit. You see? I want to be part of that. That's important. That's the idea here when he says he's joined hard to the synagogue. Now, we don't really need to go through the the, 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 the letter of Corinthians to underscore the need of, of how important it was to be numbered with a church because I sense in this language that it was so rough on the outside that it was important to be close to the church of God, to be, this, to be close to the sanctuary of God, to be, the, to be close to the, the nucleus of where the, the word of God is preached and spoken about and honored, you see. That's what I see here. I mean, the Corinthians were subject to all kinds of problems. And we see it in the epistle. Someone has mentioned there are as many as 11 problems associated with the Corinthian church. But all these problems that they had were cultural-based. And I think it's very difficult for us as Christians today to be facing a culture whose mood swings go up and down, in and out, all over the map. You know, Christians are fixed by these principles, these long, enduring principles 
that do not change. And that we're, we're, we're worshiping God in a culture that is constantly changing. I remember 2003, I put out a newsletter at Columbia Church. And I remember this distinctly, that over there in Australia, there were certain pastors getting locked up for hate speech. And it was in that same year that the Supreme Court knocked down an old indecent law and paved the way basically for leveling this idea that marriage is between a man and woman. That started back in 2003, and I could see it coming. It's a culture that's given to change. It's a culture that's given to antagonistic attitudes towards you. Those two pastors could care less about the culture. They just wanted to worship God in the confines and the secrecy of their own meeting house. They weren't pushing their religion on anybody, but they were pushing their culture on us, you see. And they will pursue you. They will seek you out. The darkness of this world won't have it. They won't have Jesus Christ the Lord being honored and glorified. They seek to dismantle him and ruin and destroy the church where his name is honored. And the only blessing that we have today is the promise that God hedges us about or preserves us, as Brother Stephen had made mention to this uh, fact. Paul, in his, epo- in his epistles, would often refer to the culture at large with certain words. In Philippians, he called it a crooked and perverted generation. And we talked about that not long ago out of Philippians 2. He mentioned elsewhere that it was a, a culture that's of the world, not of God. John says it's of the world, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the pride of the... The eyes, all this is not of the Father, but it's of the world. That's what I'm talking about, this culture. In one particular case, the Apostle Paul leaves Titus, a youthful young minister in in Crete. In Crete, of course, was very much a part of the Greco-Roman Empire, the, the culture. And it's very interesting what he says about the Cretans. He said they're evil beasts, you know. And then he adds... Which witness is true, which is really, you know, how would you like to be a young minister in Crete and the people that you're supposed to preach to, ordain elders in every city, he gave the command to this young man. And by the way, the Cretans are evil beasts. Which witness is true, you know? And so we're surrounded by all kinds of different things and people and isms and, and we're called to be joined hard to the church of God to worship the Lord. So what do we do? In terms of the obstacles and the difficulties. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we see even in a family, there are difficulties. Even in a family, because why? Well, in the case with the Corinthian church, people were being converted to the truth. But the other spouse wasn't. And they were very much involved in the gods and the goddesses and the activities of this world. And all of a sudden, there was a tremendous agitation or obstacle to a believer desiring to be numbered with the church. And so this is the thing that's approaching us where, you know, years ago, I was talking to a customer friend of mine and he's got a second home in Hooper Island. And I said, well, what kind of, you know, we were talking alarm communications and telephones and stuff like that. I said, do you have internet down there? Oh, no. 
I don't have, there's no internet here. I just have a landline. Do you have a cell phone? Yeah, but it has no reception. So what do you do? I said, I read. Oh, you read? He says he's got books all over the place. So he leaves his home in Howard County. He goes to Hooper Island every weekend and he reads. I said, I like to read too. He said, what do you read? So you always look for an opening. I said, I like to read theology books. You mean books about God? I said, that's it. He said, I'm reading a book about a missionary who went to Mount Everest. Do you see how the door opens? And all of a sudden, we just talked for the next 20 minutes on the phone. But, you know, years ago, in other words, he's not living with TV. He doesn't have internet. He just goes there and reads. He says, so many people today don't know anything about the history of even our country. What are you talking about? Christians don't know nothing about their Bible. We don't read it anymore. Preacher preaches on it. My mother told me something about it years ago. And grandma reads it, but I don't. We don't know anything about the Bible. And funny, the irony is that we know all about the Bible, although we've never read it. Well, anyway, the point that I'm making is that... uh, What do we do? The culture is slip-sliding away. We are fast approaching the time of antagonism toward Christian beliefs. They're taboo in many circles. I saw a billboard not long ago about a church advertising for people to come. You know, Christians, Christianity without rules. You know, inviting people to come. I mean, we love Jesus, but leave your Bibles at home, that kind of thing. So Christianity is fast taking on the elements of the culture. And Bible-believing pastors are feeling left out in the cold. Bible-believing pastors who love the teaching of the scriptures are preaching to smaller and smaller crowds because people have all kinds of idols. And they have all kinds of ideas about what a church should be. This hardness of which we speak is a good thing. In terms of what justice was doing. Because in spite of the obstacles. Oh I know where I was. I was in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Where it was breaking up families. And I wanted to drive you to this point. And that is that under the circumstances. Of a difficult situation. Where you have one spouse going one way. And one going the other. How do we deal with that obstacle. In terms of the church. Well the Bible says. In Hebrews chapter 10. Don't or do not forsake the assembly. As the manner of some is, as we see the day approaching. We provoke one another unto love and to good works. And here's what I get out of this. If you have the light, now your spouse may not. Your children may not. Here's where I'm tying it together. What we heard about years ago as it was played on television in our living room is now in our homes. The drug problems, the horrific problems of disobedience is now not played out no longer in some family over there in the city. It's played out in our own homes. And so there's a great dis, uh, a problem and interruption in terms of our faith and practice and our desire to be numbered with the church with our own situation because of the movement of the culture. And what is it that we do? And here's what Paul said. Abide in the same calling wherein God's called you. Abide. Now he There's other things going on in that great chapter. But the point of the Christian is to pursue the course of the church, to be joined hard to the church, to be identified with the church, and to have a a singleness of heart toward the church of God. 
and not be dismayed by the difficulties and the obstructions that we find even close to our own hearts and souls in the church. Okay, so that's all the point I wanted to make. So what do we do? We don't forsake the assembly because God has given us light. You and I, God has given us light. How do we respond? Well, we, we respond the same way the Lord taught us, and that is to whom much is given, much is required. If you know the gospel truth, you have a lot more light, and you're responsible and accountable to that light. God is no respecter of persons. What he gives you in terms of knowledge is not to be denied. And that's why he says in a verse following, if we sin willfully, after having received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. And I don't know altogether what that means. Brother Compton would say, and I halfway agree with him, the Lord died on the cross already. He's paid the price. If you commit sin, you'll have to answer for it. For our God is a consuming fire. In other words, we have to be accountable to God for our own actions. We can't be accountable to God for another member of our family's actions. We must, we must follow the Lord based on the light that we have. And this bears out a tremendous responsibility in our lives. Because men have hazarded their, their, their lives for the cause of Christ. Paul the Apostle, right here, will be beaten for what he believes. That's all. We're just talking about a belief system. We're not talking about causing anybody harm. We just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We honor him. And yet he's beaten for it. Left for dead in another place. I'll tell you this thing about... Easy believism in the last generation is not that which faces us today in our age, and it's not certainly what's going to face our young children in the future. And we need to prepare them for it. We need to hold them up in prayer because what's coming is going to be very difficult. And many will turn away. There'll be a great falling away from the truth as the day approaches. Many. He assumes that much in that text in Hebrews chapter 10. That the day is approaching. He's assuming that many will forsake the assembly. That they will no longer be in a place where they provoke one another. Unto what? Love and to good works. That means there's no encouragement in the things of God. People today look at Christian church as an a la carte menu. I want this and I want that. They don't obey the word of God. They don't, they don't obey that word authority. They don't bring themselves under the authority and the headship and the rule of Christ. They choose for themselves. This is a selfish generation. I see it in my own heart. And that word hard has another connotation in scriptures. The hardness of heart. The hardness of unbelief. Paul mentions it in the first chapter of the book of Romans. He's describing the alienation of mankind against God. That's right, against God. They pursue a course against God. And he refers to him as un, excuse me, implacable. This generation is an untoward generation. This generation is an opposite generation. They have an opposite disorder against God. It's not enough that you worship according to the dictates of your own conscience. We will not allow you to even do that. They put those two pastors in Australia in 2003 in jail 
much like they're doing right today in China. The State Department came out with a warning two weeks ago, a warning to every American who travels to China. Be careful, because when you go to the airport, they may not let you leave. Why? Because that's what communism does. They, may not, they, they have the right to keep you for as long as they so desire. And then you multiply that and you compound that by Bibles and worship and churches under the fear of being put in prison, taken away from your family and your loved ones. See, the Christianity was never a display or a hodgepodge of easy believism, you know, coasting your way into heaven's pearly gates. It's never been that way. You're not reading something in the Bible. You're reading something far-fetched. Well, we're going to move on to the last point. And this idea of justice attaching himself hard to the church. By the way, that word implacable means hard. It means unforgiving. And he follows that word by, the, by another word, by unmerciful. These people are out in pursuit and they're unmerciful. And they oppose God. I'll never forget the time when old sister Jane and brother Don and I went to the Double T Diner and we sat down for a meal as our custom was. And there was another group of people sitting right next to us. And these young men obviously could see that we were church-going people. Prayer, conversation, and they just started rioting right there in their table, swaying and chanting over and over again their sinful ways. I wanted to tell you, I keep Sister Malcolm's obituary card in my Bible. I've done since October Because she puts traction on this thing about faith and love of the brethren. I remember. I remember her willingness to be part of the worship service. Her desire to join hard. Although interrupted by physical ailments. I remember every fifth Sunday at Columbia the Malcolms would be there to worship with us. On fifth Sunday meetings. Of course, I told her one time I loved her oyster stew or soup. And every time I saw her, she wanted to make me some. I would go over to her house to work, and she would have her oyster soup. <laughs> well, these are the joys of making fellowship. Now, listen, the third part of which I, I'm going to come to a conclusion here because I want to give you some attributes, two main attributes in terms of what the church is really about. And without each of these attributes the church will fail or be distorted. The circle won't be a circle. It may be some other blob or glob or some other look or appearance. But without these two major ingredients, you cannot have what Justice had here when he joined hard to the synagogue. And one of them is honor and reverence to God. One of them is reverence to the Lord Jesus Christ. Honor him, to believe in him. Was Jesus interested in 
what the church, what his disciples had to say about him. He asked his disciples once, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He asked them the question. He put it to them. And I think we ought to, each one of us, answer the question today. Whom do you say that Jesus, the Son of God, is? The Son of Man. Who, whom do you say? Well, some say you're Elijah or Elias and Jeremiah the prophet. I don't know. He named a few others. Yes, but whom do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ. Thou art the Son of God. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God from heaven, who came to this sin-cursed earth to die on behalf of sinners, to set them free. I honor the Lord Jesus Christ. I give reverence to Him, and I worship Him. Now, the interesting thing is that those two ingredients, both reverence and love, reverence and love, are the same ingredients that we find in Ephesians chapter 5 in terms of a husband and a wife. You show me a wife or a spouse that does not reverence her husband, and I'll show you a husband that loves in name only. There's no affinity. Listen, reverence is very important to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't honor Christ for what he did, if you dishonor him, you, he doesn't manifest himself to you. He doesn't matter. You don't know what's going on. You're on the outside looking in. You've never had the sweet fellowship. Your, your soul has never been raptured into the things of God. You've never been pressed in the spirit. Your heart's never joined hard to the synagogue. You're just on the outside looking in. Quite frankly, I'm a spectacle to people like that. I'm a fool for Christ's sake from that particular vantage point because you've never entered in. You've only known Jesus as some, you know, other way of defining him, but not the God of the Bible who is omnipotent. Our Lord God, omnipotent. He reigneth and he's accomplished salvation of his people. And he's coming again to take us home to be with him in glory where we shall spend an eternity with him and all the saints whom he died for forever and ever. I worship and serve a living Savior. This is what's on my mind when I come to church. When David said in Psalms 24, excuse me, 27 and verse 4, he said, one thing, one thing I desire of the Lord, that I may, be, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That I may behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. That is wild. I desire, notice the spiritual aspect of it. I desire, I behold, I inquire. Isn't that neat? It talks about what we do as a people when we come to church. We behold what? The beauty of what? Some articulate, eloquent preacher... A big screen, good-looking people, rich and the famous. No, we behold the beauty of the Lord. When the Lord Jesus Christ is introduced to the seven churches of Asia by John the Apostle, he introduces him as this, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sin in his own blood. 
We see the Lord Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for our sin. We honor him for his person and for his work. That one who loved and gave himself an offering for sin. And yet that's the very thing that's being skirted and removed from houses of worshiping today. That's what I mean, but they don't look like circles. They're deformed in every way, shape. They're deformed. They're misaligned. They're following the world's pattern. They're not following the biblical pattern. It's terrible. Justice was like a Daniel of old who purposed in his heart not to follow himself with the things of the world. He purposed in his heart to serve the true and the living God and to honor and bow in his heart in reverence unto God Almighty. To respect the truth for what he says. That's what it's about. Well, the last thing and probably the most important thing that we find in church is this idea of loving one another. Of knowing the love of Christ manifested through what? Through people. That's why he joined hard. That's why he was willing to sacrifice his life. That's why some of the members even at Mount Carmel have moved and spent thousands of dollars to be closer to the the church. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? Why do they put this thing first and foremost that they may behold the beauty of the Lord? What is it that drives them? I'll tell you, if you have the reverence of the Lord God, you'll have the love that is manifested from breast to breast. You know, John's epistle, or his epistles, are loaded with this idea of love that is known through, he said, love one another, even as God loved you. He says, uh, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that ye have loved one too. Another. That's in the Gospel of John, the narrative. But in the epistles, he really lays it out. And in such a way that we not only love one another, but we know God in the process. You know? And I've come to love my brothers and sisters here. So much so that I can see God's love through you. And it's been a blessing to my life. And one of the aspects of that love that drives us when we realize we, you know, it just humbles our hearts. We, we melt under the idea that God died for us. He, he loved us so much that he gave himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave himself. We associate the sacrifice, the giving, the relinquishing of who he is in terms of his glory... Coming to the sin-cursed earth, humiliating himself, taking himself upon himself, the form of a man, becoming acquainted with grief and sorrow, God of all the universe, is melts in our hearts when we think about what he left, what he was separated to. You see, the strength of love is in that separation, is in the idea of separation. You know, when you love somebody, you never want to be separated from them. And when you are, when you are, it's the most difficult thing a person can perceive and feel in their hearts. It tears you apart. Love is known through the power of separation. And God separated himself for our sakes. 
And the joy and the reward of the Lord for his death and for his separation. Was it a worthy cause? You know what he said before the Father? He said, I and the children which thou gavest me. Do you know the greatest joy that the Lord received for his sacrifice are his people? And that's what the church is all about. It's his people. And we get to the point in our lives where nothing will move us or take us away from the household of faith. I hope by the God's grace that we can be justices, just like the man we've been talking about, and to worship God in this little low ground of sin and sorrow, that all our remaining days can be held in the joy and in the fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, from breast to breast, from heart to heart, and may the Lord bless you today. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.